Well, it's time to go inside EMS. I am your host, Chris Sabalero, reminding you that there's 16 shopping days left till Christmas. And here's the man that never gets me a Christmas present in all the years we've been together, my good friend, Kelly Grayson. KG, First how you all, doing? Man, yeah. I am the Christmas present. Yeah, well, I, I like I to refund it. Can I return it? Can you send me uh, yeah, to receive? I'm, I'm what you get for being a good boy all year long. Uh, otherwise, you'd be getting a lump of coal every single year. But I put in a good word to Santa. You know, Sevalero, he's an acquired taste. Santa, you know, he's not a, he shouldn't be on the naughty list. And uh, I got to tell you, man, if there's a flip of the coin between you and a lump of coal, uh, I like to see what the coal looks like. <laughs> you know what I mean? And this day and age, man, coal is uh, some good, sh- good stuff. But that's right. So good catch. That's right. So Kelly, December 8th, and we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to do the end of year show today, and we'll have one more show, two more shows before the end of the year. Then we take our annual two week vacation, and then we'll be back in the first week of January. But one of the things that we do every year is we kind of look at the top stories that have made the rounds inside of EMS. And we uh, have talked about a lot of these stories. But we wanted to go ahead and bring you the biggest and kind of just recap them as they really had some effect. And some of the things that we see is we start off first, you know, you like to call it EMTs and paramedics behaving badly. We did have a few of those, you know, legal challenges that are going on inside of EMS. And one of the things that I think before we really kind of pull the stories out, we'll pull up uh, a couple of them right now, is that before we start to highlight those. EMS is getting very, very, people are observing more and more the work that we're doing or the work that we're not doing and trying to make a name from themselves. And they are bringing charges for paramedics and EMTs not doing the right thing. And, you know, we go to Maine where we talked about a last January wrongful death claim filed against former Maine EMT in the volunteer squad. We go, Pardon me, we go up to Chicago, Chicago Fire Paramedic is or Chicago Fire Department fires a paramedic after an investigation reveals that alleged missteps in the patient's death. And then I don't know if we want to add this one or not. But when we talk about the Dallas paramedic was seen kicking a homeless man, again, that goes back to September of 2023. He was reinstated throughout yeah. his through his appeal. But these were big stories. And of course, I think the one that we talk about that that you know goes to this topic was again back to January eleventh, police body cam release after EMS providers charged with murder of a patient in their care. And we talked about this as a career field for weeks. Yes. I mean, there were experts coming out on this, but basically a 35-year-old man died from compressional and positional asphyxia which the coroner said resulted from being face down on a stretcher. But I think, you know, I, I certainly want to get your uh, opinions about all these, but one of the things that we're seeing more of, and I know your argument is always the 24 hour news cycle, we're seeing a lot more EMTs and paramedics being held accountable for the care they're not giving or the missteps that they're making in the care that they're delivering. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, to a certain, we, we've discussed body cams and, and cameras on the ambulances before and, you know, had differing opinions on it. But I do think that this is, you know, this is a, a means of accountability and, and the fact that, 
we should always conduct ourselves as if we're on camera. And the the care, <laughs> it's a stretch to call it care. The the lack of care, the apathy, and the absolute disregard for patient patient's best interest displayed in this body cam video is is you know it, it's if you wanted to say what's wrong with with our profession this this would be exhibit a i've never seen anybody so disinterested in care and and then they go on to you know plop this dude face down on the stretcher it, it's like a instructional video on how to screw it up in ems and this is not the only one. You know, you mentioned the the Dallas firefighter paramedic who was on video kicking a homeless person who got reinstated. I don't know where the accountability is there, but but this this was pretty much a black mark for for EMS. You know, I thought the Glendale firefighters threatening to kill the the postictal seizure patient was bad, but this topped it. You know. These guys were charged, which I suppose is the only good thing to come of this. They were they were held responsible for their criminal activity. And that's what it was, Chris. It's criminal activity. This is not just negligence. The, this was wrong. This was depravity and, and willful misconduct. I don't know if you could just, you couldn't, you can't charge this up to having a bad day or having a bad night. And, but 20 to 60 years in prison is, is what they're, potentially looking at and uh, you know I, I don't know how, how you can say anything good about it or see a bright a, uh, a silver lining in that dark cloud I think that one of the things that we have to be able to get across to the listeners is that you know we, we run our business and we do our job you know where we are in our career meaning that I, I wasn't always the most compassionate paramedic in the world yeah. And it wasn't, and it wasn't until you learn the skill of being a good paramedic, it isn't just about IV starts and intubation and, you know, being able to recognize, but it really is truly giving your all to the people who are calling, whether it's BS, whether it's, you know, life-threatening, whether it's potential life-threatening, whether it's just a medical call, we have to be able, we picked a job that we were at people's beck and call when they dialed the three digits but one of the things that we talked about, Kelly, when these stories came out was we don't know the call that's going to wind up on national news, right? And we just can't, we have to stop assuming that this call is BS, that this call is benign, that this call means nothing because it's the apathy that we have. It's the lack of compassion that we have. It's the lack of professionalism we have that is going to put us on every single news cycle that there is. And I think that that's what we have to be able to get across. We could sit here and opine on what, you know, happened in Dallas and what happened in Chicago and what happened in Illinois with the uh, attempted murder. But really what it comes down to, you know, to everybody out there who's listening to us, it's you have to do your job better and cleaner than the next guy. You are responding to your members, you know, to a member of your family's home. And you have to be able to treat them as if you would want to be treated. And I think, Kelly, that's the biggest lesson that we can give as we talk about these few stories. Uh, I agree totally. <clears throat> when you appear on the news, you're not employee of XYZ Ambulance Service. You are EMS. And you represent these people represented EMS very poorly. 
I know we, we've said in the past, and, and I'll continue to say that everyone is an expert about someone else's call. However, the objective facts are, is you know, that shown on that body camera, you, you can't excuse something like that. And I can be an expert on that person's call. That's the wrong way to do things. That is that is utter apathy and disregard for your patient's best interest. You split up your crew, you know. <laughs> There's no excuse for kicking someone while they're down when they're offering you no resistance. I don't care if they hit you first. You keep going, you are you are abusing someone and committing assault and battery. There there is no no gray area to that. And and when you get caught doing that sort of thing. To the eyes of the, the world, you are EMS, and this gives us all a black eye, and we need to condemn it as forcefully as we can. Yeah. So if we switch gears a little bit, another uh, topic that we talked about quite a bit this year was that EMTs getting stabbed, EMTs getting killed, EMTs getting hurt. And we had a couple that came out of New York City, if you remember, Kelly, the one that we have pulled up right here is a New York EMT stabbed multiple times by agitated patient. Patient stabbed at Mount Sinai, uh, a patient stabbed at Mount Sinai EMT several times in the legs, chest, and arms. But also a story that we talked about, if you remember, was the EMT that was walking to the station and just jumped by somebody on the way to, you know, work in their job. Now, they weren't on the job, but certainly the EMT was brutally stabbed and killed. Yep right there on the corner in New York City. But we are starting to read, we are starting to report, we are starting to hear more and more of assaults and severe assaults. It used to be that an EMT or paramedic would catch a would catch a fist. You know, they'd catch a slap, you know, they'd yeah. be pushed. But now they're getting stabbed. Now they're getting yep. now they're being killed. And again, you know, we talk about it all the time of self-defense. We talk about all the time of the equipment we need. Certainly, there isn't a lot of safety from knife blades, but this is really scary. And if there's anything that moves people out of EM EMS, it really has to be the fact of worrying that you leave the house, you may not be coming home that day. If there is anything that moves people out of EMS, it really is probably going to be the assaults. I mean... I think that one of the things that we need to be able to think about is, is there anything that really keeps our providers safe? We think about blades. What can we really wear when it comes to being stabbed? You know, we think about self-defense. You and I have talked about, uh, you know, the, the programs that are out there that people can take. But now that we start to see more of these stabbings, it, it really becomes the challenge of how do we, you know, how do we keep our providers safe in this situation? I don't know. You know, there's only how how expensive are bulletproof and staff resistant vests and, and what policies and procedures can you enact and put into place to, to safeguard your people? I don't know that you can. I think it's it does speak to to something larger in in EMS and society in, in general. There are there are dangerous people walking the street seemingly more than ever and probably do it at least in large part to a collapse of our of our mental health system and this has been going on since the Reagan administration uh, and we're reaping the the bitter fruit of that now but but that that speaks to the the disenchantment people have with the profession and we have a culture problem and we have we have a workplace safety problem a lot of people 
think that the the juice just ain't worth the squeeze anymore. It's not worth the the hassle and the risk to to work in EMS. No matter how much personal satisfaction we might get from a good call, they don't make up for all the bad calls in the rotten culture. I don't know, man. You know, I I think that that admonitions like you you use to keep your head on a swivel only go so far, and and I don't think this this epidemic of violence is is limited to EMS. But I, I can't help but but think what Skip teach, teaches in escaping violent encounters that the best way to to defend yourself violent encounters never get in one. And if we did things like stop taking people against their will because it's not our job to put people in custody, leave that to the experts and verbal de-escalation and better customer service, that that would curtail a lot of that. In the case, yeah, of the, but I don't know that that's. I don't know that Mount Sinai. She was she was minding her own business. Exactly, I was going to say was, I don't know she that was that's doing fair. the most dangerous thing in any major city. She was on the street corner minding her own business, <laughs> and we all know that assault victims all all were doing that. It's this guy just jumped her out of nowhere from from what I read in the news reports. And yeah, I mean I everything was going fine. Everything thing. was going fine apparently until you know they saw where they were. The you know they saw that they were pulling into the loading dock of the hospital, but. You know, so if we switch the gears again, and and we talked about the the lack of apathy, really, when you talk about kicking someone, when you talk about lack you know, of empathy, I'm <laughs> there's sorry. plenty of apathy to go around. <laughs> I'm sorry. Thank you very much for the correction. You know, one of the things that we also have to do is when we're doing good care, we've got to make sure that we are doing the best care that we can. Two stories that came out uh, during this year, Kelly, one in February of last year that a patient had a heart attack after Kentucky medics administered the wrong drug in the ambulance. And then there was one in February that came out of uh, Clearwater, uh, Florida. Two Florida medics pronounce a live patient dead. And those are two stories that we talked about as well this year. And it really has to be able to, we really have to be able to take the evidence that we have and make the best decisions. Now, we're not going to sit here and armchair quarterback what happened in Kentucky. We're not going to armchair quarterback what happened in Clearwater, Florida. But I think what we want to be able to do is bring the awareness that every single call is critical. Here was a case in Florida where the firefighters or the fire medics, they claimed the patient was dead and the patient was alive. They didn't do that on purpose. I mean, that wasn't a, you know, let's put them on the stretcher and strap them face down, you know, uh, in excited delirium, whatever it was. This was where they just made an error in being able to determine if the patient was alive or not. If you're going to try to pronounce and we don't pronounce, right, we usually have to get on the, we usually have to get on the horn and we usually have to talk to the medical control and say, doc, this is what we got. This is what we did. This is how long we did it. That we did it for. And then the doc will look at his clock and say, time of death, you know, 857. But I think what we have to be able to do is do everything we can possible to make sure that one, we're delivering the highest quality of patient care. And we've talked about mistakes in the back of the ambulance, Kelly. I've made them, you've made them. I think a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, I told a story where I was getting ready to give lidocaine instead of atropine, you know, to a 90 pound woman, which I would have delivered this whole uh, thing of lidocaine until my EMT partner said, you may want to check that medicine. Right. And it makes you think how many medicines did you give that you don't even realize that you gave the wrong freaking medicine. Yeah. But with that said, we've got to be able to ensure that 
we are doing everything that we can possible to deliver the highest quality of patient care on every single call we do. I don't care if it's knee pain. You know, I used to tell the EMTs and paramedics that I trained, I want you to listen to everybody's breath sounds. I want you to listen to everybody's heart tones. I don't care if they have knee pain or foot pain or toe pain or whatever it is, because really what you're teaching yourself is what normal is. And then when you hear something that's abnormal, you're able to go to the doc and say, when you go to the ER and say, doc, I heard something in the heart that goes against S1 and S2. What is that? And you just taught yourself what an S3 gallop is. But I got off on a little soapbox there, so I digress. But every single call that we run, Kelly, has to be able to be done with the utmost of dedication, commitment, professionalism, as if it was the last or maybe even the first EMS call we've ever run. Yeah. You know, I... I think complacency is what kills there. Most major medical mistakes are not made because of a lack of education or or a lack of training. They're because we got we got complacent, we got sloppy in something that we already knew how to do. You know, I tell my EMT students uh, or my and my paramedic students at Clarkson, I, I tell them, you know, the thing that's that's going to trip you up is not something that you did wrong as a paramedic it's it's probably something that you knew better than to do as an emt yet you you made that mistake anyway you got complacent and the the story out of kentucky brought shivers down my spine because i very nearly did that exact same thing oh really to a patient except for it wasn't epinephrine it was dopamine oh i had a nauseous patient i was about to give her own dancertron and pulled out the green vial and it popped the cap on it, was looking it up and was about to draw it up. And I handed it to my partner and said, check this for me. And, you know, three o'clock in the morning call. And he said, this is not on Dancitron. This is dopamine. Wow. And I was like, oh, my God, can you imagine pulling up a 400 microgram IV bolus of dopamine and giving that IV push? I would have killed her Yeah, <laughs> and, and caught that. And reported it as an adverse event. and soon Oh, you thereafter, reported it yourself? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I reported yeah. it myself. And and soon thereafter, we had a directive and, and Acadian put into place some engineering controls to, to avoid that very thing. No longer are you allowed to keep Tron and dopamine near each other in the drug box. And in fact, I think we wound up putting them in different pouches in the drug box so that that mistake could not happen again. And, you know, two, two milliliter green vials, you know, with a green cap. And I think soon thereafter, they started ordering from a different supplier on Dancitron so that the vials were gray, which just means that, you know, you mistake it for Benadryl the next time around. <laughs> but, but that sort of thing. And, and I can see where, where that sort of thing happens, but nobody wakes up uh, in the morning and goes, you know what, I'm going to be a crappy paramedic. I'm going to make a medical error that kills someone. And I hesitate to, most of us can think like the, the two Florida medics, you know, this has happened to some, some, I think San Antonio fire a couple of times where they had patients they declared dead and, and they woke up in the morgue and, and, and there have been several other EMS agencies around the country that have, where this has happened. And until it happens to you, you can, how can you not recognize a dead person? And then I was working in the ER and I had a patient with what I truly believe was Lazarus syndrome. We called the code. <laughs> we called the code 
And I, they were in a systole at the time. I left the room. I went and got my lunch from the, from the cafeteria and bought a couple of Coke Zeros, went back. And the doc said, once you tidy that patient up before the family comes. And while I'm tidying, I'm tidying up the body. I happened to notice that the colorimetric CO2 detector that was still on the end of the endotracheal tube was bright yellow. Mm. And you know that, you know, in a code, they, at, at best, they go tan, but yeah. they're never bright yellow unless the patient is breathing and has pulmonary circulation. I went, oh, that's odd. And then I looked and you could see the guy's carotid artery throbbing in his neck. He had pulse and breathing. And I flicked back on the telemetry monitor and man, he's in sinus bradycardia. How, uh, uh, how, how many years did you have? What was your experience level at that time? I was, I, I was a, a 15 year paramedic. Oh, so you were new. Oh, I was not new at all. I, I was, you know, I had moved to South Louisiana and was working, working as a, a, a paramedic tech in the ER. And this had been my patient and they were asystolic in three leads when we called it. The doc didn't work it for very long because it was uh, an elderly patient who was was terminally ill. So she she gave it a token token resuscitation and called it. But he came back ten minutes after you know ten minutes after we stopped the resuscitation. And I walked into the nurse's station where the nurse was on the phone with the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, and I was like, uh, "Ixnay on the organs." <laughs> And they, she said, what do you mean? I said, he's alive. He's alive. It's like, like Frankenstein's, but freaky. But, yeah. you know, so I, I, it can happen. It's rare, but it can happen. So I, I hesitate to, to, to criticize anybody on that issue. All I can say is check, check, and check again. And yeah. that will, that sort of thing will, will serve you in good stead on your medication cross checks and declaring people. Dead. And best, and best practice really is to listen yes. as well. So put them on the monitor, listen to their heart, listen to their lungs. I mean, depending on what they're breathing, how they're breathing, uh, you may not hear anything for a bit, but as you mentioned, uh, we need to be able to be a little bit more diligent. You know, one of the articles or uh, stories that got a lot of national and worldwide attention, Kelly, was the NFL player who went into cardiac arrest after the hit that they had in Buffalo or was a Buffalo player. Yeah. Yeah. And that was really interesting. I mean, there were a lot of speculations about it. And then really what you have to be able to, you know, work on is the fact that, you know, this was a a well-placed hit at the right time that caused this member to go into cardiac, this a player to go into cardiac arrest, 24-year-old professional athlete. He briefly stood up after the tackle. We all watched it on the TV before collapsing to the turf, and we were all very concerned when we saw it, and we were all speculating, and we were all talking about it. And then, you know, we really have to, we really started to think about, well, you know, high school kids and college and all these other things, but that was a big story this year. Yeah. Yeah, and and EMS providers and and the citizenry learned learned a new word, commotio cordis. It was it was it was kind of instructive to me how how few EMTs and EMS professionals knew what commotio cordis was. <clears throat> but it's basically you know it's a precordial thump in reverse. You catch the timing just right during the heart's refractory period, and and it's it's like a precordial thump in reverse, or or the the Fonzie death blow. 
Uh, young young readers and young listeners get the old listeners to explain to you who Fonzie was but you know that was the the sad thing was or the the kind of thing that kind of perturbed me was is is everyone praised the the Bills athletic staff and and all that yeah and it wasn't noted that you know that that paramedics were were doing most of that resuscitation yeah um but that's fine. I don't. I don't care as far as credit. They saved a life, and that young man is out there participating and starting in NFL games again, and, and that's a that's a happy ending. And I'll take any of those we can get. Any happy endings we can get, we like. But <laughs> not going there. I don't. That's not what I meant. But anyway, another big story that came out this year was really in June, which really took EMS. By shock. I mean, but it was another one that we just couldn't believe where the Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services ends the ET3 model early. And it's really came out of nowhere. And I think it ends the 31st of uh, December. Um, but there were a lot of agencies who were doing great work. There were some agencies that uh, didn't even get started yet. But having worked on a couple of the task groups for ET3, we saw, you know, great enthusiasm in the beginning, and then little by little, people started to check out and not do the work. There were some that were continually trying to get it done. But I do think prematurely, uh, CMS was not an advocate for this program. When we think about this from the standpoint of, you know, they're not, they weren't seeing the monetary returns. This was a pilot, man. You've got to be able to look at the pilot to say, we've got this many people, and you've got to be able to change what your expectations are going to be. Here's one of the biggest mistakes, Kelly, that I think was made in this ET3 implementation. I was very, very sad when this happened was ET3 was coming. We were waiting for a start date, and then COVID happened, yeah. right? And then everybody was given the opportunity to do what ET3 was able to do, treat them at home, take them to alternative destination, take them to the hospital, whatever it was. And then from that standpoint, everybody was doing it. You weren't just picked for this, right? Yeah. And all of a sudden, then when COVID starts to weaken, they eat CMS says, okay, now we're going to implement ET3. Why don't you just yeah. let everybody who was doing it do it? You know, you're worried yeah. about the numbers and you're worried about the, you know, the ROI, the return on investment from the, you know, the side of what you're getting out of this program. And I think you screwed the pooch on it personally. And I was very, very distraught and disappointed that they just didn't keep things the way they were. But anyway, it was a program that we thought was going to make a difference. Everybody thought that, you know, this was the first time a new payment structure was put into play. And now we got to flip the coin to say, does CMS ever come to the table and give us anything else? I don't, I don't know that they do, and and they don't have a good track record of making of making decisions based on good information. So you know, oh, government agency makes unilateral decision based on limited data set. Here's my shocked face. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> the two things stand out here. Number one, EMS being its own worst enemy. We had a few active players in the ET3 pilot program that were doing good work and, and proving the concept and, and gathering good data. 
And then you had the vast majority who were not and who were just kind of sitting on their laurels a little bit or, or slow dragging their feet and everything. And, and this, you know, okay. You know, it's just like anything else in EMS. You got a few high performing agencies, but the, the vast majority are out there just kind of going through the motions and doing the, the least minimum. And, and CMS looks at that and goes, well, you know, we don't have enough data. However, you know, back when they did the Medicare fee fee schedule in the in the 90s, they they were gathering information like that. And of the surveys they took, um, the vast majority of people uh, of agencies where the surveys were sent did not respond. Uh, and only one agency responded in any volume, and that was American Medical Response. So a damn fee schedule was set based on the responses of mainly one or two large national, multinational EMS agencies that could leverage economies of scale. And as a result, we wound up with 20 plus years of, of fee schedules that are 30% less than the actual cost of doing care. So CMS wasn't, wasn't hesitant about making a, a policy decision in that regard based on a very limited data set. And now suddenly we don't have enough, not enough people are participating. I don't get it other than to say that a government sucks and it's inefficient. And if you want them to screw it up, put it in the hands of the government. There you go right there. You know, uh, but Kelly, Kelly Grayson for president. Kelly Grayson yeah, for president right, right there. Know, so uh, I'm going to be liberal. Uh, I'll be the first libertarian president. Candidate. That's big. Can motto, I be the secretary of defense? That's right, man. And and when our legion of flying monkeys completes our quest for world domination, crap's going to change. Yeah. Uh, and, so. you know, there was a whole bunch of other stories and we don't have time to get to it. Really. We've got to get to our close. But a couple of those were where the delivery workers in New York City were making more than the uh, FDNY EMTs, you know, resignation of an entire EMS agency up in Iowa that brought up a lot of discussions our favorite one was FDNY EMT paid $400,000 for staying home and is still owned 15 months of money. But, uh, you know, another one I think was interesting, and this came from our, our peers over there at Fire Rescue One, amputation articles, uh, paramedics and EMTs helped with an infield amputation, which is always interesting to see. And then the big one, I think, as we end this right here, Kelly, is the American College of Emergency Physicians withdraw withdrew their position on excited delirium, which I don't know was was a bad idea, but it was a good year, man. And we've got one more show that we're gonna kick out, a couple more shows this year, and we start a new year, man. Year eleven of the Inside EMS podcast. Sure. But hey, we've we've had it's been an eventful year. We saw some we saw some clinical advances. We saw we saw some good evidence based medicine, you know, and 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 some things I think needed to happen, like the ASEP withdrawing their their approval or their endorsement of the term excited delirium because I I do think it is a catch all diagnosis that is much more nuanced than just saying someone had excited delirium syndrome. And we had the usual gamut of good calls and bad calls and, and black eyes and, and shining moments for EMS. Uh, and we we can only hope that 2024 will give us better news stories to report. So here's to, here's to that wish that we have nothing but happy and fun and sunshine and rainbows for 2024. But for myself, co-host Chris Ceballero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We're going to catch you guys next week.